This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Are you looking to save 50, 60, even 70% on your phone bill? Well, here's a tip. Broadvoice.com. Hi, it's Brad Staggs of Blaze TV here. Broadvoice offers high-quality phone service for only $8.95 a month. You may ask, how can I save so much money? What's the catch? Well, the secret is the technology. Broadvoice uses VoIP technology that takes analog audio signals from your phone, turns them into digital data, and then transfers them over the Internet. This means crystal clear sound and cheaper phone bills. Broadvoice has been ranked in the Deloitte Technology Fast 500 and Inc. 500 as one of the fastest growing private companies in America. Get Broadvoice right now for only $8.95 a month. Keep your existing phone number for free and Broadvoice will send you their easy plug-in adapter free. All this and you get unlimited local calling for just $8.95 a month. Plus, for a limited time, Broadvoice will even give you your first month free. Do what we did here at Blaze Radio. Make the switch today at Broadvoice.com or call And welcome to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for the vacationing Glenn Beck. If you weren't listening yesterday, I'll tell you a little about myself. I actually got my start in media with Glenn a few years back, but I was a cop. I was never a media guy. I wasn't a radio guy or a TV guy. I was a, uh, a, a law enforcement guy and a business person who really found a love for media after, after being called on air to give my subject matter expertise, realized our country was a bit of a mess and wanted to share that expertise and, and help solve some of the problems. I host a radio show down in Florida and a few other cities. And uh, uh, met Glenn years back, did a show with him, went very, very well. And I'm so flattered, honored to, that he asked me to sit in and host for these couple of days. And, uh, you know, I want to I start the show by tapping that law enforcement experience and talking about something that, to me, is is really tragic. I mean, we analyze many, many issues through the lens of uh, law enforcement, through the lens of intelligence, through the lens of the criminal justice system. But rarely do we look at the cost and what what is is uh, is causing that cost. And I'm talking about the epidemic level crime in the city of Chicago. Now, there's crime across the U.S., but Chicago is an anomaly. And many of you know my work. I cover law enforcement issues often. Uh, but many, many of you don't. And if you don't listen to my show, uh, catch it on stream or you're, you're local in Florida or the cities where we're on air and you don't follow me on Twitter or Facebook, then you probably haven't been exposed to uh, what I typically do, which is use FBI, U.S. Census, Center for Disease Control data, local law enforcement data, and debunk the narrative of the left. Because I really think the left has done such a tremendous disservice by stifling debate about what I feel, and, and, and I'm, you know, considered, I'm, I'm not here to toot my own horn, but, but a subject matter expertise on, uh, expert on this issue, and I feel that one of, one of the 
the largest contributing factors, as do many academics, as do many analysts, one of the, the, the largest contributing factors to these epidemic level rates of crime is that we're not allowed to talk about what I think is the ultimate root cause, black on black crime. We're not allowed to talk about things that are statistically and factually proven. Now, if you're a research-oriented person, uh, and you know what the FBI UCR is. Uh, if, you, if you don't, I'll explain it. It's FBI every year puts out what they call their uniform crime reporting. And all, almost all of the police agencies in the U.S. report. Now, the detractors will say, well, that's not accurate. It's not complete. Not every agency reports. That's true, but it's an insignificant truth insofar as the agencies that don't report tend to be very small agencies with very low crime whose contributions would be statistically insignificant. It wouldn't really make a difference if a local law enforcement agency with 10 cops that had three burglaries uh, contributed that would never offset the numbers in, say, New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles alone, let alone all of the other agencies around the countries that contribute. So for statistical analysis purposes, the FBI UCR is ironclad. And that is generally accepted by by every academic, every criminologist, every sociologist who's intellectually honest. Now, the pushback you get are people who tell you there are other sets of data. That's not anecdotal. It happened to me. I'm, I was a regular on, on Dr. Drew Pinsky's television show. I was on the panel. I was typically the token conservative law enforcement guy. And when I would bring out the FBI and census data, which I'm going to give you some bullet points in a second, the, the social justice warriors and, and the hard left lawyers who were also on the panel would tell me, well, that's FBI and census data, but there's other data that contradicts that. And my question would always be, okay, where are these parallel universe uh, federal bureaus of investigation and, and U.S. census bureaus? Because other data is irrelevant if it's not coming from the source, the source being the law enforcement agency reporting up to the FBI. If the New York City Police Department is saying we have X murders, X robberies, X rapes, X burglaries, and the FBI is reporting those numbers as handed to them, well, that's pretty ironclad data. Police departments typically don't fudge their numbers. And, and you know, in law enforcement, we always said, well, yeah, you can, you can turn a robbery into a burglary to downplay a stat. You can turn a, an assault into a disorderly conduct. Prosecutors do that to uh, mitigate uh, a crime stats or the optics of crime stats. But the one thing you can never hide is a body. Murders are murders are murders, and you cannot hide a body. You can't turn a murder into an assault. You can't turn a murder into a burglary or a robbery. And so just focusing on murder, just focusing on murder, black-on-black crime is epidemic. The levels are epidemic. And sadly, tragically, the, 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 the most egregious perpetrators are young black men. Uh, the age ranges of, of 14 to 17 and 18 to 24. Young black men, 14 to 17, comprise, oh, somewhere around 0.3% of the population of the U.S. Young black men, 18 to 24, comprise about 0.5% of the population. Taking that latter subset, now this is not a John Cardillo number. This is, this is the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation and the United States Census Bureau. Young black men, 18 to 24, who comprise 0.5% of the population, are responsible for 11% of the homicides in the U.S. yearly. Let me say that again. A subset of our population, that is 0.5% of our population, 
is responsible for 11% of our annual homicides. That means that young black men, 18 to 24, are committing murder at a rate 22 times their representation in our population. But even more tragic, 90% of their victims are young black men. Now, when you have a subset of our population that is killing and being killed at rates 22 times their representation in the population and dying at a rate 20 times their representation in the population, well, that's not just a criminal justice epidemic. That's a public health epidemic. And Tiffany Gabay, my my co-host, my executive producer, is in studio with me. She's nodding her head yes. Now, Chicago is about the worst. You just moved. You relocated back to South Florida from Chicago last week. You lived in Chicago through some of the most violent years, right? The last couple of years. Did it affect your everyday life? You lived in a nice suburb, but did it affect your everyday life? You have a young son, 18-month-old son. Were there places you wouldn't go because of the crime in Chicago? Well, definitely. And I think one of the most uh, startling things about Chicago is the South and Southwest sides that are, are the most ravaged by crime are literally blocks or maybe a mile off of neighborhoods called the Gold Coast, right. where, you know, these are affluent, lovely shopping areas. I mean, anytime there are protests, um, anytime there are protests, anytime there are, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, riots, I mean, they are taking to Michigan Avenue. These are, are highly trafficked retail streets. Um, so, yes, this is definitely uh, impacting everyday people's lives. I mean, you can live in the suburbs, but if you want to go catch a show or you want to go to a restaurant downtown, you have to be cognizant of the neighborhood you're, well, you know, well, you're going Well, same in Miami, to. though. My, and Miami doesn't have that level of crime, but, but it does affect people's everyday lives. And it is so, it is so sad that the liberals won't let us talk about it. They want to talk about gun control. Chicago had for years, up until a recent court decision, the most draconian restrictive gun laws in the U.S. The, the absolute worst, you couldn't get a firearm if you weren't law enforcement. You couldn't carry a firearm if you weren't law enforcement or retired law enforcement. Yet it did nothing to mitigate crime because we know I'm not going to be cliche and beat a dead horse. Bad guys don't follow gun laws. But the statistics... When, you, when We talked about this yesterday, how liberals love science until science debunks the liberal agenda. When the FBI and the U.S. Census Bureau is telling you that black children are murdering at a rate 10 times their white counterparts and 90% of their victims are children, black children, in the same age range, it is cruel, it is racist, it is reprehensible to not let us talk about this and not let us solve the problem. And murder is the most tragic component, and it's the component we can most uh, effectively use to illustrate the problem. Because like I said, you can't, you can't skew the crime stat on a dead body. But how tragic, we're talking about murdered children. Where is Black Lives Matter? Where is the Black Lives Matter movement when a, when a young black child is murdered by another young black child? They're not there, they're only there when the anecdotal false narrative of murderous police officers, we're going to be talking about that a little bit later this hour, only when that narrative is promoted, that false narrative is promoted, is that movement there. And I happen to think that's a very radical movement, a movement that worships a, a cop killer, Asada Shakur, and another cop killer, Mamiya Abu-Jamal. But we, we have a problem, and it breaks my heart. I respond to these cases as a cop in the Bronx. Every time I responded to a child severely injured, fatally wounded, or, or dead on arrival, you take that with you. You remember their faces. You're, I remember their names 20 years later. 
Later, you have to do notifications to families. But we, we, we are vilified if we dare talk about this. We're racist. We're white supremacist. We have white privilege. We're, we're obfuscating the real problem of murderous police officers and American imperialism. No, we're not. There is a cultural crime problem within the black community. And I speak to many, many black police officers. They're just out of their heads about this. They, they try to get this message out there. And they're shouted down louder than anybody. They're shouted down more violently than anybody. They're abused by their own communities for trying to solve this problem. And how cruel is it we're trying to stop children from being murdered by identifying the root cause and we're being we're being silenced. But it's not only murders. This is trickling down to assaults and burglaries and disorderly conducts. Uh, yesterday, malls around the country saw something pretty reprehensible. The day after Christmas, a pretty busy shopping day, malls around the country were closed down. And we're going to tell you why when we come back. Stick around. You're with John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn Beck, the Glenn Beck program. Glenn Beck. Mercury. Are you looking to save 50, 60, even 70% on your phone bill? Well, here's a tip. Broadvoice.com. Hi, it's Brad Staggs of Blaze TV here. Broadvoice offers high-quality phone service for only $8.95 a month. You may ask, how can I save so much money? What's the catch? Well, the secret is the technology. Broadvoice uses VoIP technology that takes analog audio signals from your phone, turns them into digital data, and then transfers them over the Internet. This means crystal clear sound and cheaper phone bills. Broadvoice has been ranked in the Deloitte Technology Fast 500 and Inc. 500 as one of the fastest growing private companies in America. Get Broadvoice right now for only $8.95 a month. Keep your existing phone number for free and Broadvoice will send you their easy plug-in adapter free. All this and you get unlimited local calling for just $8.95 a month. Plus, for a limited time, Broadvoice will even give you your first month free. Do what we did here at Blaze Radio. Make the switch today at broadvoice.com or call 888-332-8036. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for Glenn during his much-deserved vacation. Before the break, we were talking about epidemic level of black-on-black crime rates. And, and in Chicago alone, I just want to touch on, on uh, uh, something about Chicago. Because we brought up Chicago because their crime numbers are really disproportionate to the rest of the U.S., especially with regards to murder. Tiffany, what are the uh, crime rates in Chicago? There were, there were 43 people shot and 11 murdered over Christmas uh, weekend? 61 people shot. Um, 61. Since uh, the Christmas weekend started, 12 dead. Uh, one of them is a 14-year-old girl who is clinging to life. Uh, uh, tragic. It, it is tragic. Um, 785 homicides this year alone. Uh, this year alone, 4,300 shooting victims this year alone. That's up 1,300 from last year. Now, um, what's the population? Chicago population about four to five million, right? Um, in the in the greater. Okay, so it's about half that. Yeah. It's about half that of New York City. New York City, less. yeah, New York City is only at about 200 and some odd this year. High 200, mid to high 200s. That that's 200 and some odd too many. But Chicago, just to put it in perspective, with half the population of New York City, is averaging about three times New York City's homicides. Now, I always, I, I want to, uh, I want to get into these mall rampages yesterday in just, just a second. But I want to, I want to also uh, uh, focus on something that people need to understand. We talked a little bit earlier about 
young black men, 18 to 24, being 0.5% of the population and committing uh, 11% of the homicides. So 22 times the representation in the population. But you also have to look at census tract data. So even though it's 0.5% of the population, it's a very small subset of those black men, 18 to 24, in certain geographical areas. Now, I don't want to get political here. I never want to get political when I talk about dead kids, dead young men. But these areas, and I study this, I'm a geek for this data, these census tract areas are overwhelmingly the most progressive Democrat-run areas in the United States, bar none. In fact, I did an analysis in depth on this about three months ago. 100% of the areas where crime was at its highest, cross-hatched with the young black men committing the crime, were the most progressive Democrat districts in their respective cities and states. There is a correlation. In, in this particular, particular instance, correlation and causation are the same. It is the institutionally racist and debilitating policies of progressive Democrats. And it trickles down to kids because I worked in a pretty much a 99% non-white area in, in the South Bronx. But only about 4 to 6% of that area was, was the criminal element. The rest, the 94, 90, 95% were good, hardworking people who simply couldn't afford to move or didn't want to move. It was their home. And they were victimized by overwhelmingly disproportionate crime of a very small minority. And then the victims were black. The victims weren't white. The victims were black working families. But again, we're not allowed to talk about that. No, we're not allowed to talk about it because it really does stem from progressivism. You know, it's been more than 50 years since LBJ's war on poverty. More than 22 a trillion has been spent on anti-poverty programs, welfare programs, and the poverty rate in the black community is basically the same now as it was then. It's just a couple points less. Well, well, it's it's design though. This is by design. This is by design to keep to keep tens of millions, maybe a hundred million Americans collectively dependent on democratic policies. Exactly. I mean, food stamps, public housing, Medicaid, daycare were penalized as well if the recipient was married. So this really led to the breakdown and the dissolution of the black family. You know, according to the Census Bureau, 73% of blacks are born out of wedlock today. 67% are growing up in single parent households. This is a direct result of LBJ's war on poverty and progressive policies. And again, these are not the opinions of John Cardillo Tiffany Gabay, the Glenn Beck. This, this is data from the United States Census Bureau. This is data from the FBI, from the Center for Disease Control, from the National Institute of Health. All of these organizations compile and crunch this data. And so yesterday we see a result of this. We saw the day after Christmas, mall rampages around the U.S. Town Center in Aurora, Colorado. 500 people involved in multiple incidents. A mall in Fort Worth, Texas. 100 people involved in Memphis, two malls, Fayetteville, North Carolina, Elizabeth, New Jersey, and the list goes on. And the common denominator was these are young black men and women that those teenage age groups that that 14 to 17, that 18 to 24, you know, teenage to young adult who are committing crime at disproportionate rates. And they're doing this, I believe, because the Democratic Party has failed them. The education system has failed them. They're taught to believe false narratives. Now, a pet peeve of mine, and I get flamed for it, is Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa was created by a guy who goes by the name of Mulana Karenga. His real name is Ron Everett. And if you don't know this, he invented Kwanzaa in 1966. And and shortly after that, in 1971, was convicted to four years in prison for torturing two women. 
the, 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 the torture was so severe, he burned them with a soldering iron, beat them with electrical cords. This guy is now, he's not sitting in prison, by the way, he did four years. He is an Africana studies professor at Cal State Long Beach. These are the people, Perfect. right? These are the people being celebrated in academia. These are the people that the United Federation of Teachers, we talked about the teachers union yesterday, that the UFT and the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, these are the people they celebrate, that they put into classrooms, that they promote felons, torturing, murderous felons, people who, who create an alternate narrative of American history. And I think it's a tremendous disservice when you tell teenagers, young adults, in any population, in any racial group, to disregard the truth, to disregard facts, to disregard data, statistics, to disregard established history, create your own, excuse me, create your own and act accordingly. And we're seeing the end result. And, and what's happening here is just another generation, in fact, many generations, that will then live in systemic poverty, that will then blame a system the same system that was designed to keep them down, they're going to be conditioned to vote for that system. It is absolutely tragic. No, it, it absolutely is. Yeah, it, it, it's just absolutely terrible. And, and I think that one of the biggest problems we run into is the mainstream media and academia again. We're going to be talking about that when we come back with John Cardillo, the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for the vacationing Glenn. You know, we've been talking a lot this hour about uh, epidemic-level crime rates in certain U.S. cities, focusing on Chicago, and talking about black-on-black crime. But we, we, we'd be remiss in addressing these issues if we didn't look at the root causes, which, which really uh, are, and which, which I should say, which stem from academia, right? I mean, all of this, everything we learn, or it's a big part of what we learn. We learn a lot outside in the home with our friends, but, but a big big component of what we're taught and what we take with us through life we learn in school because you're supposed to trust your teachers right tiffany you're supposed to trust your teachers you're supposed to think they're good people who have your best interest at heart and are giving you an objective view of the world and giving you all sides of an issue and want you to learn and express free thought and and even if you disagree with them if your argument is sound and your research is solid they're supposed to praise you for that. And that's what happens in schools today, right? And you're so impressionable at that age. Right? I mean, you're yeah. just a sponge and you look up to these professors. Right, and they're, and they're fair. Teachers today aren't biased. Well, you know, we look at something that happened at Drexel University. Pretty good school, Drexel. A Drexel University associate professor, George Chicharello Mayer, uh, tweeted, that tweeted, quote, all I want for Christmas is white genocide. Now, mind you, this is a white guy. 
He wants to see all white people killed. Talk about self-loathing. Self-hating. Yeah. Self-loathing and self-destructive. So then he, he doubled down, right? He, he tried to backpedal later on, but he doubled down. And, and he, so he didn't let it go with all he wanted was white genocide. To clarify, this is a direct quote, quote, to clarify, when the whites were massacred during the Haitian Revolution, that was a good thing indeed, end quote. And Haiti has wow. fared so well. Yeah. Haiti's fared so well as an independent nation. And they're just a center of culture, science, art, food, technology, architecture, engineering. I mean, this guy isn't out of his mind. So then he, he tried to backpedal, and he says that now he was he's the victim of a right... Uh, uh, yeah, I'm stuttering today. A, a right-wing witch hunt. And he claims that he was only targeting white supremacists and that his message was satirical. Drexel disowned the guy. Drexel released a statement basically saying... While they recognize the right of its faculty, of their faculty, to freely express their thoughts and opinions in public debate, this particular professor's comments are utterly reprehensible, deeply disturbing, and do not in any way reflect the values of the university. But they which do. they should. But they do. They that, do. Exactly where I was going. They do. Because you know that after he tweeted that, look, we don't know, but we know. Right. We don't know, but we know that when he went into the faculty lounge or whatever the equivalent is on a liberal college campus, he was getting pats on the back and high fives. And he was the coolest guy for the rest of that day. And the ones who disagreed with him were silent because they were afraid of being ostracized or of reprisals. Of course. Of course. I mean, even the boards of trustees have been infiltrated. So there's really you know, this is the thing people need to understand. You really don't have if you're a student and you're a student that's conservative or moderate and you have a radically leftist professor. And and really, this is more in college, because I'm seeing with friends of mine who have uh, elementary and high school age kids, junior high school age kids, middle school, they do have some recourse. When they complain, the principals and the superintendents of schools still get a little nervous, and they tend to address the issue. Even if it's a token address, they address it, and it typically squashes the issue in that classroom with that teacher. But at the university level, at the college level, you really don't have any recourse because the the bias, the radical left-wing bias, is institutional. And so who are you really going to complain to at Drexel? You're going to write a letter to this. If you're a parent or a student, these students are adults. They're college students. You're going to write an email or a letter to the professor. He's not going to care. Right? He's going to give you a token apology. You're not going to be satisfied. You're going to kick it up to a department head who's probably a department head because they're more radically leftist than this guy. Exactly. And, well, you're not going to be satisfied. Send it up to a dean who's a tick more radical leftist all the way up to the board of trustees who got there because they're the most radical leftist of all. So who do you complain to? You don't. So you shut your mouth, you pay your tuition, and then you grow angry as a conservative. You come out of school having to deal with these people and become me <laughs> or you. And, and that's not a good thing either because only one, you only were given one side of the argument. You know, I've always said uh, learning and academics uh, and politics love one thing, equilibrium, right? And when the ship tilts too far left, that pendulum swings really hard right. And you wind up, and so the left winds up with something they fear most, or the right winds up with something they fear most. Equilibrium is a pretty good thing. We, we no longer have it. But we, we look at, so we look at a professor like this, right? And this is a question. This is a question for the audience. Tiffany's question for you. We look at this professor. We look at crime in Chicago. We look at that census tract data. Now, all the things we spoke about this morning thus far. And we look at what instit- institutional uh, uh, racism in the Democratic Party, how high crime is is concentrated in census tracts whose local political districts tend to be the most democratic, the most progressive. When we look at all of these things, we see that there's something happening by design. I don't 
think, and I, I'm a guy, if, if you follow me, if you listen to me on air, you know the one thing I hate are conspiracy theories. I hate them. I'm a fact and data-driven guy. But I have to look at the people that are alleging that the George Soroses and and the, the other uh, the Hollywood, the Harvey Weinsteins and the Hollywood billionaires, the, the radically far-left people with the money, with the influence, the media power to do it, I have to start thinking that there's something to them being behind all this. Why else would they fund it? Why would the union, SEIU, with billions of dollars in, in union dues coming in, why would they fund social causes? I get funding politicians that are going to be pro-union and give you better collective bargaining rights for your members. I get that all day long. That, that's why you would fund a politician. But what does SEIU gain from funding Black Lives Matter activists who sent New York City police officers to the hospital? What do they gain from that if, they, if these people are not ideologically aligned and pooling their money to turn us into a socialist nation? Yeah, it's societal change. It's social justice. And they have been whittling away at it for decades. I mean, if you look at this Drexel University professor, what is he really mirroring? I mean, back in the 80s, you had Jesse Jackson leading a Stanford student saying, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western right. culture's got to go. Right. Now at GW University, you can take a history major and not even have to study American history. At George Washington. Washington. You don't even need to know who George Washington is. And they have tried to gut Western Civ because of all these dead white guys like George Washington or Shakespeare. These are, uh, to the left, white supremacists. Yeah, didn't they pull, what would school pull down uh, the English department, right? They took down a, a, a portrait of Shakespeare and put up the portrait of a black lesbian activist poet or something. That no one had ever heard of. University no one, of Pennsylvania. Yeah, UPenn, Ivy League. Yes. They took down in the English the department. Worst. With English lit, right? That, that's they, right. They, they ripped Shakespeare's portrait off the wall. They put up the picture of this black lesbian writer that no one, and I, let, me ask, let me tell you, I put it out on Twitter. I spoke to my audience on my show. No one, including me, had ever heard of this woman. Now, you're, you're a little more literary than I am. Had you ever heard of this woman? I had never heard of her. I had to look her up. Audre Lorde. Don't uh, know who she is. Feminist lesbian poet. A poet. A, yeah. a poet. On par with Shakespeare. On par with Shakespeare. On par with Shakespeare. <laughs> this is what, and UPenn, what's the tuition at UPenn? 70,000 bucks a year? Yeah. Probably 120 grand all mm-hmm. in to go, right? With books and tuition. And, uh, 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 what it, housing. 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 Dorms, There's right. a word, right? Food and all that other fun lodging. stuff. Yeah, lodging. <laughs> <laughs> Dorms. Dormitory is what I was looking for. But it's nuts. So you're paying six figures for your kid to go to school to not be have to be indoctrinated, not have to take American history and history class and have Shakespeare replaced with somebody that 11 people know who she is. There's a fundamental problem here. And we're trying to erase. But what they're trying to do as well is erase and sanitize white history. I know people are going to say, well, all history is white history. Well, it is, but that things sometimes are what they are. There's not, that's not racism. It just is what it is. Absolutely. One of the greatest cultures and civilizations in history. I mean, and we are basically erasing it. Yeah. In 200 years, by the way, 240 some odd years, what we've accomplished, and, and we're being taught to be ashamed of that. Absolutely. Let's be ashamed of it. Let's erase it. Well, no. No, let's not. We should be screaming from the rooftops to these third world countries, to the Muslim nations with 5,000 year old societies who are their their greatest architectural accomplishments are adobe huts. We should be screaming from the rafters. Look at us. Be like us. The most benevolent, uh, generous country in the history of mankind. We freed millions upon millions from oppression. From from despots, from dictators, and and kids are being taught to be ashamed to be American. 
Absolutely. I mean, listen, Western civilization spans from Greece and Rome. I mean, every significant historical period thereafter. I mean, it's given us philosophy, science, math, a model for democratic government, advanced economic systems. Oh, All of that is nothing. Yeah, because because Tiffany, see, you're, you're getting bogged down. You're in the weeds. It's all about lesbian poetry. It's all about black radical lesbian poetry. Don't you understand? See, I just can't. When we come back, we're going to talk about something that I want to talk about, that the mainstream media doesn't talk about. Murdered police officers, and just how many there are this year. How many more there are this year than last year? Number depressed me. Stick around. You're with John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn Beck, the Glenn Beck Program. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, helming the mic for the vacationing Glenn Beck. We've got a caller, Ron, from Pennsylvania. Good morning, Ron. How are you? Hey, John. How you doing? Uh, Ron James here. Um, just wanted to uh, chime in when you were talking about the gentleman that did the four years, him, uh, the founder of the uh, Kwanzaa and all that. Uh, I don't know what he's doing in the schools, but my, you know, uh, myself, uh, I spent 25 plus years going in and out of prison, and um, I I thank the law enforcement, uh, you know, for what they did by 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 locking me up. Um, I'm in a situation where I go all over the country, and I uh, speak to schools, middle schools, high schools, and even colleges, helping uh, students uh, make their next choice their best choice. And I really home in on trying to help anybody, help people. And if that if that guy that that founder if he's doing something like that then thumbs up if not then you, you're right he needs to get out of the way. So no, that, I agree with that, you. That's Ron. what you I wanted to you know share. I, 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 comm- I commend you. One. I I commend you for what you're doing. What types of offenses uh, offenses were you convicted of? I it, a laundry list of things um, from forgeries to theft by deceptions, uh, DUIs. I spent a life of um, dealing with the opiate drug addiction, crack cocaine, and uh, they're even uh, making a movie of my life. Um, uh, J.C. Films out of West Virginia is uh, doing a, a document, a, a movie of my life, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm living in a dream. It's, it's far beyond, you know, uh, uh, everything that I can totally understand and grasp, but just want to be in the position to help people and, you know, author the book choices that good stuff. I wish more people in your position had your mindset. When was the last time you were incarcerated? How long have you gone now without any trouble? I appreciate you asking that question. It has been May 14th of 2012. Okay, so you've and I haven't you're, had you're a four, drug four or alcohol years. or anything in 11 you. years. Well, God bless. Good for you. Really appreciate the info. Thanks for the call. Keep up the great work. Can I send you, can I send you my book, John? Sure, you sure can. It's, uh, you can just go to my website, johncardillo.com, or find me on Twitter, at John Cardillo, and all the information okay. is there on how to reach me. Thanks very much for the call, Ron. I want to talk a little bit about murdered police officers. Actually, I want to talk a lot about murdered police officers because no one else is, but I'm just going to give you names. I'm going to give you names that you probably hadn't heard, and I'm going to give you some names from uh, this past month that you probably hadn't heard. Corrections officer Lisa Malden 
Have you heard of her? I study this. I'm a student of this. Her name came across my screen once. Miller County Sheriff's Office in Arkansas. She was killed Monday, December 19th, the week before Christmas. Assaulted. She and another corrections officer assaulted by inmates. Murdered. Public safety safety officer Jody Carl Smith. Murdered by gunfire December 8th of this year. Police officer Nicholas Ryan Smore of the America's Police Department in Georgia. You heard about this case. He was also murdered December 7th by gunfire. In fact, in 2016, there have been 62 police officers killed by gunfire, up 59% from 2015. Law enforcement saw 130 line-of-duty deaths, up 7%, up 7% from 2015. Now, some of the 138, I'm sorry, my mistake, 138 line-of-duty deaths, up 7% from 2015. And it's not just gunfire. We're still seeing, one of the things we're still seeing that is grossly underreported are 9-11 related deaths for responders to the the Pentagon and Ground Zero in New York City. Cops I know, friends of mine, have terrible, terrible illnesses, some of them terminal. We don't hear enough about this. And this is something that I talk about on my show all the time. There's a great resource. Uh, It's ODMP, OfficerDownMemorialPage.org. I suggest you go to this page once a month or go to this page once every other week. When you hear the false narrative about murdered police officers and how terrible police officers are and how they do nothing for you and they're overpaid, remember that the men and women who are our first responders, not just police officers and and deputy sheriffs and our federal agents, but our firefighters, our paramedics. I can't tell you how many times in the NYPD we were called to assist paramedics and EMTs who were being shot at from rooftops. They weren't even issued... A body armor. There was no money to issue them body armor. And they were working alongside of us in the worst of the worst neighborhoods. So I I would love you to take a couple of uh, minutes out of your month and think about our first responders. We we think about our troops. Thank God we do. But think about your firefighters, your EMTs, the people in in a blinding snowstorm who will race to your home if you call them. They're not going to ask your race. They're not going to ask your sexual orientation. They're not going to ask your income level. They're just going to get there as fast as possible to help you and your family. And just think about them, say a prayer for them, and remember their names. Do that. You'll feel better. Stick around. We've got a lot more for you. You're with John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn Beck, the Glenn Beck Program. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.
Welcome to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for Glenn. Give us a call, 888-727-BECK, 888-727-BECK. You also follow me on Twitter, at John Cardillo. We're going to be live tweeting some of the more interesting segments of the show today. Sitting with me is Tiffany Gabay, my executive producer, co-host. And uh, I want to tell you a little bit about me, because many of you are just tuning in. You might not have tuned in for the last, uh, last hour, or you may just be tuning in for the first time. I was also here yesterday, but uh, you might have been still on your Christmas break yesterday. And uh, my background was law enforcement and business with, uh, with a strong foothold in the legislative arena during both. And I was the guy that was being called on shows like Lens to give my subject matter expertise, do analysis, realized our country was in a bit of a, a, a bad place and decided to take the message to the public full time. So I host a radio show down in Florida. I've got a pretty strong presence on Twitter. I, I write for various sites and uh, decided to share some of my expertise, some of my experiences with all of you. And, and really, we live in a world where that couldn't be timely, that fusion of my law enforcement experience and uh, my time as one of those evil donor class guys with my business, seeing how after testifying to, geez, 15, 20 legislatures, state legislatures, uh, the U.S. Congress, U.S. Senate committees, I sat on, a, on an Internet safety uh, and security task force, convened at a Harvard Law School. I saw how policy is made and, and really how laborious the process is. And, and, and it concerned me because we live in a pretty dangerous world. And one of the things that scares me these days, one of the things that, that keeps me awake, we talked about this yesterday. I had a friend of mine on the show here uh, who was the chief of intelligence of NYPD, really a world expert on terror. And we were talking about the things that keep us up at night. And the things that keep me awake at night are low-tech, asymmetrical attacks. And, and simple speak, what that means are three guys in a room, three jihadists in a room planning the mass shooting in a mall, or planning the, the, the planting of a pressure cooker bomb at the Boston Marathon, or another marathon, or under the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, or uh, Times Square at New Year's Eve. Because those kinds of attacks are the ones that are nearly impossible to interdict. They're the ones that are nearly impossible to uncover before they happen. There is no chatter. It's a couple of guys in a room who know each other for 20 years. They know that, that each other are not FBI informants or police informants. They know they're not wearing wires. They don't have to use any kind of electronic communication device. They can simply go to the local Starbucks and plan this attack. And it's low tech. You can go to any hardware store, any homeware, houseware store, and buy the, the implements you need to do this. And so those are the things that keep me awake at night. So it's very scary to me when we see world leaders do things that seem to me anyway to be somewhat suicidal in nature. We have the head of the European Union, the president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, or Juncker, which would be more appropriate with this policy, where he warns against the rhetoric of exclusion and that terror only takes us if we allow it. Now, I think uh, 3,000 people who perished on 9-11, 2,977 people who perished on 9-11, would, would seriously disagree with that statement, especially those heroes who fought back on the, on the flight that crashed into Shanksville, Pennsylvania. They would take great exception to that. I think the 343 New York City firefighters who perished rushing back into those buildings after saving thousands of lives, well, they would really take exception. I know it offends me as a former NYPD guy. Uh, it, uh, it's a reprehensible statement. It's a terrible statement. But but this guy, Juncker, over in, in the EU, feels that if you open your borders and allow refugees in, that somehow helps you fight terror. Now, that was bad enough. 
until Prince Charles, who, by the way, whose sons have, have done an exceptional job in the war on terror. Prince Harry was out there on the front lines. Prince William is a helicopter pilot rescuing people. So for Prince Charles to say what he said really, really offended me. And I know it offended many others. If you haven't heard it, this is what Prince Charles said. And we might also remember that when the Prophet Muhammad migrated from Mecca to Medina, he did so because he too was seeking the freedom for himself and his followers to worship. And what he, what he was really saying was that we should remember the Prophet Muhammad on Christmas. Now, it seems innocuous, but it isn't. Because groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, they thrive on, they look for, they feed off of weakness. It's their energy. Weakness is their, is their gasoline. It's their battery power. Fear, they're terrorists. They exist to terrorize. So they don't listen to Prince Charles, the ceremonial of, of heir apparent of England. They don't listen to him and say, well, he's open-minded. Let's give the guy a break. They say, that's a mark. That's a victim. Let's go get him there. Like, terrorists are no different than any other street thug I locked up when I was a cop in the Bronx. They, they do things on a grander scale, but it's the same deviant criminal mind, the same murderous killer mind. For him to say this really sends a terrible, but, but more importantly, a dangerous message to al-Qaeda, to ISIS, to Boko Haram, to al-Shabaab. It's an invitation to come in and murder his people. And that's all it really is. And, and if you know your history, you know that Mohammed's little pilgrimage down to Mecca was not a peaceful journey. Yeah, he wasn't minding his own business in Mecca. They were lopping a lot of heads off along the way. And that wasn't by, you know, that wasn't just happenstance. That wasn't by chance. Exactly. You know, by the sword, that was uh, right. that was Muhammad's mantra. And, you know, 30 battles, invasions, conquests, slaughtering people, Jews in particular. And uh, and on Christmas, that's the message we have to hear from Prince Charles. But, you know, I've told you this, John. This is what the multiculturalists don't get. The Islamic terrorists use our Western values against us. They see, as you said, tolerance as weakness. And, and every time we vow, you know, not to 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 basically look at people, refugees, with suspicion and to not give them the gift of our hatred, that is exactly what they want because they know we'll be sheep to the slaughter. Well, yeah, and if you, if you, there have been stories breaking recently uh, about the interrogators who's, who interrogated uh, the guys close to bin Laden, his drivers, his bodyguards. The philosophy has always been to use our PC culture against, they laugh at us. They mock us, the terrorists. I, I interface with a lot of a lot of intelligence people, guys that were uh, CIA, DIA, that worked in NYPD intelligence, the federal agencies, and to a person, I mean, they are students of this. And, and most of these people, you know, I, I think people have this 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 conception of your CIA field officer, your your intelligence uh, agent, you know, whether they be FBI or NYPD, the cops, as just gun-toting gunslingers out there. These guys who grow beards and strap M4s on their chest. But my friends who worked in that world are top-tier academics. Harvard Law School, Fordham Law School, Georgetown, Cornell, Johns Hopkins. These are great minds. And one of the things they do, more than clean their weapons and gear up and train, the thing they probably do most is research, is academic research on the, the mind of the Islamic terrorists, on the history of Islam. Be, going out into the field probably accounts for 20% of what they do. 80% is that research, understanding the enemy. And they will tell you, to a man, to a woman, that they use our politically correct open-mindedness against us, they being the terrorists. They want us to silence people who say, well, maybe you, you should look at Islam. Maybe you should look at radical Islamists over, say, 
Catholics or Protestants or Mormons or Jews, because those groups aren't out there slaughtering wholesale. But when we dare do that, when we dare do that, we're Islamophobic, right? If you, we Law enforcement around the country tells us, if you see something, say something. But if you dare do, you're an, you're Islamophobic. an Islamophobic. Oh, you're an Islamophobic, racist, bigot, xenophobic. Don't you dare call. You've got four Islamic guys living next door, all under the same name of a guy who, by the way, was deported to Pakistan under the Patriot Act seven years ago. And they're hauling unmarked boxes into their garage and shutting the door and not talking to the neighbors. Don't you dare say a word, you xenophobe, you Islamophobe. And I use that example because that's an actual case. Somebody actually, a friend of mine, had that situation. And we alerted NYPD intelligence. And it turned out these were bad guys. These guys were terror fundraisers living in an apartment in Brooklyn. This is happening. And, and one of the things that we've been, we've been sold a false bill of goods by the Obama administration, a very false bill of goods. Well, two false bills of goods, one by the Obama administration, one by the left. One is that vetting of refugees from Middle Eastern Muslim nations, 34 nations of terror concerns can be done. The other is that profiling as a, as a criminal justice tool is ineffective and a bad thing. Both of those are our bad bills of good. Both of those are false narratives, and I'm going to tell you why when we come back. Stick around. You're with John Cardillo, the Glenn Beck Program. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for the vacationing Glenn Beck. I want to talk to you about two lies you have been sold over and over and over again by the Obama administration and, and Democrats on the whole, progressives on the whole. You've been sold these lies by Barack Obama himself, by his, his deputies, by his secretaries, by his, his appointees, the heads of his departments. You've been sold this lie even harder by the mainstream media. Lie number one. Lie number one is that we can vet the refugees and and those who even aren't even established refugees from 34 nations of terror concern around the world coming into the United States, whether whether they be official refugees or they pour across the southern border. Some estimates, I spoke to a a senior person in, in, in ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, just the other day, somebody I know personally. They told me that they, they uh, ICE estimates about 300,000 people have come across the southern border from 34 nations of terror concern. Now, if you speak to, if you listen to the mainstream media, if you listen to CNN or you hear Josh Ernest putting uh, something out of the White House, you think that the vetting of a refugee is simple, that it's the same as vetting an American. Well, at the top of the hour, I said that after law enforcement, I was in business. And this is really uh, pertinent because my business was vetting. We were, we were uh, vetting and finding uh, pedophiles, sexual predators, uh, violent criminals, and terror fundraisers and, and, and within large online communities. I bought tons of data. I attended seminars with the FBI, the U.S. Marshals, at, at, at various police academies around the country. I, I interfaced with Interpol, uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I was trained by, I conducted trainings at these places. And I learned more about vetting than most other people. I was invited to sit on a task force. Uh, convened at a Harvard Law School by all 50 attorneys general to give my subject matter expertise and to learn. And when I hear Barack Obama say you can vet refugees, it is infuriating. 
So I spoke to a, a very, very close friend of mine, spent 11 years in CIA, and he laughs at this. And he says, you know the way we vetted people in the Middle East? He said, when I was deployed, and he's only been out of the field about three and a half years. He said, we would drive to a village, say it's Syria. We would, we would have a target or, or somebody that we were looking at. We needed to vet him. We would drive to some village, and we would say, hey, this is Ahmed. He said, his dad's name is Mohammed. He was born around 1979, and he said he was born in this village about 20 miles southwest of Damascus. And some tribal elder would say, yay or nay, they'd say, yeah, yeah, you know, could be. That's an old picture. It might be the kid. Maybe not. I don't know. Yep, yep, I think that's him. That's probably him. And I know this sounds like I'm being a bit cavalier and I'm glossing over it, but if you want to be intellectually honest and you talk to the field operators, that's about as good as vetting gets. What the Obama administration has done is they've taken one component, one component of refugee, those that have helped our people, our our troops, our intelligence operatives in the Middle East, people that were known to us, people that were known to be loyal, people who we were able to vet because they interfaced with our personnel for five, six, seven years. So we had a bit of a history on them and they had some documentation. Well, yeah, to a certain extent, we can vet them. So here in the U.S., it's different. Every adult in the U.S., me sitting here behind the mic, Tiffany Gabay sitting here with me in studio, all of you listening, we have tremendous paper trails on us. If you've ever registered a vehicle, insured a vehicle, if you pay an electric bill, if you have a mortgage, if you have uh, a credit card, we have tremendous paper trails on us. Any of the big data aggregators could easily generate within a split second, literally in real time, a second, second and a half, about 17 to 20 pages on us, probably 100 pages if we want to uh, know friends of friends of friends based on address histories and connections. It's very easy to vet an American, and our, and our data laws make that possible. Try doing that in Canada or the UK or France or Germany. It's virtually non-existent. We tried with my business. We tried to vet bad guys from around the world. The data privacy laws make it very difficult. Then you get to the third world in terms of, of infrastructure, technology infrastructure, in the Middle East and Latin America, you can't do it because the data simply doesn't exist. There are no historical repositories of records. So this data doesn't exist. Vetting cannot be done. It's all on the honor system. And color me crazy, but I don't want to trust a potential terrorist. I don't want to take their word for it. And so what do you do if you're going to let these people in? Well, that's a perfect segue into the second lie you've been sold, the lie that profiling and monitoring is a bad thing. Now, Profiling is only a bad thing when we talk about potential Muslim terrorists because law enforcement for years, and I can speak to this personally, I'm Italian-American, for years, the FBI, the New York City Police Department, Chicago Police Department, have been profiling Italian-Americans when they go after La Cosa Nostra, the mob. They use Italian agents and Italian detectives and infiltrate Italian social clubs and businesses that are known to be mobbed up, private sanitation, etc. Nobody complains. In fact, there's a waiting list of guys like me, Italian guys in law enforcement, to get onto those details because they're prestigious. More importantly, it's good law enforcement. It's good investigation. It makes sense. We've done it with the Bloods and the Crips. We deploy black detectives and agents to infiltrate gangs like that. No one complains. Black communities don't complain. They know it's sound policing. We did it with Colombians and cocaine. We do it with Mexicans and the cartels. We do it with various Asian communities for the Asian gangs, the triads. But only when we want to deploy those same types of, of resources to investigate the Arab Muslim communities for potential terrorists within are we deemed xenophobic, racist, Islamophobic, and we're taking away tremendous tools. And one of the best tools we've ever deployed against terror was what was uh, uh, casually known, colloquially known as the mosque 
CI, Confidential Informant Program, in the New York City Police Department. It worked very, very well, and it was not based on religion. The media lied to you. I'll tell you firsthand, as former NYPD, having a very good friend who was a supervisor on that program. The Mosque CI program was very simple and very effective. Every day, the NYPD Intelligence Division would go through arrest reports and look for the nation of origin of an individual, not their religion. You could have been a Catholic from Syria. They would have still come and spoken to you and potentially used you as a confidential informant. You might not have been in a mosque, but you still may have lived in a Muslim community as an Arab. They looked for your nation of origin. And oftentimes, this yielded highly actionable intelligence. And you were like any other confidential informant. If you were arrested on a minor charge, the district attorney's office would cut a deal with you to reduce or dismiss that charge in return for your testimony, for your help, for your you being eyes and ears on the ground. No civil rights were infringed upon. We do that every day with every other type of crime in law enforcement. We cultivate confidential informants every day. But only, only when we did it in the Muslim community was there an issue. And we, we essentially, and I say we, not we, the progressives, guys like Bill de Blasio in New York, guys like Barack Obama in the White House, wanted to take this highly effective tool, a tool that... You know, luckily, we don't know how many lives it saved because we don't want the bad guys knowing too much about how we do and and, and what we do. But I can tell you and what I can tell you comfortably without feeling I've divulged too much on air is that lives were saved. And it was many more than one life that was saved because of these programs, programs that are constitutionally sound, because any wiretap that would go on pursuant to finding a good confidential informant still had to have a judge sign off, whether it be a FISA, the the, uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Court judge or or a regular federal judge or a local judge, there was oversight. There was constitutionality. There was due process. And so please don't buy these lies. Push back on the politicians who sell you progressive narratives that put you and your family in danger. Because this is what I did for a living. These are the people I interface with. Refugees cannot be vetted. Profiling and monitoring is a very, very good thing that has saved countless lives. We're going to be talking more about this. You're with John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn, the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for the vacation in Glenn. Give us a call, 888-727-BECK. That's 888-727-BECK. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at John Cardillo. I'm going to be tweeting the real interesting stuff 
from the show today. So we've been talking this hour about terror and about some of the, the false narratives uh, you've been sold by the progressive left uh, with regards to vetting of refugees and regards to profiling of bad guys, no matter who those bad guys are, whether they be Islamic terrorists or La Cosa Nostra, the Italian mob. I don't discriminate. Bad guys who want to hurt people are bad guys. I want to uh, deploy the best tactics to stop them. But one of the things we don't speak uh, about enough, and I'm guilty of this as well on my show, I touch on it, but I don't touch on it anywhere near enough, is a threat that's right here at home. See, if we sealed the borders tomorrow, if, if somehow we were able to wave a magic wand and we were able to build a 20-foot wall around the United States and we were able to mine every harbor and do these draconian unconstitutional things, we still would only make a slight dent in the terror threat. Now, you're saying, Cardillo, you're out of your mind. What are you talking about? You sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist. Well, no, I'm not. Because one of the things you don't hear enough about are the radical converts in prisons. Remember, we've got a very large prison population in the United States. Now, about a year and a half ago, I had uh, uh, Pat Dunleavy on my show, and he's a world expert with regards to prison conversion to Islam, the radicalization and weaponization of those converts. He spent about 30 years at New York City Department of Corrections. He's written several books on this and then worked with our intelligence community, training special operators on how to identify those who might be converts from America on the battlefield overseas. And when we first spoke, I said, well, you know, I'm reading that there are about uh, 30 to 40,000 people who convert to Islam yearly in, in U.S. prisons and jails, right? Their prison's different than jail. Jail is that holding facility for misdemeanors, and before you face trial, prison is where you go after convicted. So whether it be federal, state, local, about thirty to 40,000 people convert yearly. And I said to him, well, you know, how many, though, do you think would radicalize and weaponize? And he said, oh, it's 1% or sub 1%. I said, okay, well, that's still a lot. That's still three to 400 people uh, the Orlando massacre at the at the gay club was carried out by one guy, San Bernardino, by two terrorists. So three to four hundred terrorists, that uh, half of which, let's say, might potentially be released from incarceration, is pretty scary. Well, about eight nine months later, had him on the show again, and that's his day to day job. He studies this. He trains our special operations community, our intelligence community. I said, so Pat, is the number still hanging around 1%? He said, no, that number is creeping up to 10% with with uh, the proliferation of ISIS's virtual caliphate and how well they're using social media and how they're spreading their message and going after a younger subset. And so now let's think about how terrifying this is, right? If tomorrow we were able to stop 100% of the immigration to the U.S. from everybody, forget even those from the 34 nations of terror concerns, from everybody, Somebody that isn't in the U.S. as of right now never stepped foot into our nation. And we were able to somehow wave a wand and get rid of everyone who had ever come here who wanted to commit acts of terror. We would still be converting in our prisons and jails yearly about 3,000 people with the potential to radicalize and weaponize against us. And again... I'm being conservative when I conservative when I say half will be released shortly after that. The number is a lot higher because we our jails are overcrowded and we tend to release prisoners long before they should be. And so we, we while while we're so focused on the refugee problem, we need to be we need to be diligent, we need to be vigilant. While we're focused on that, we also need to keep our eye on the ball here at home because if we don't do that, if we put ourselves in a position where we ignore the threat that's already here, where we don't 
put as much uh, money and time and training and resources into the intelligence component of finding out who these people are, what they're doing. And again, what does that require when they leave prison? Well, that's going to require profiling and monitoring. And like I spoke about a bit ago, the progressive left doesn't want to do that. So they know, they know full well that there is no mechanism right now to track these people once they leave the facilities. But one thing I found out about seven, eight months ago, and Tiffany, I don't know if you know this, uh, there's a uh, congressman in Tennessee, and I, I forget his name, and uh, I think maybe Fincher. I'm not sure if that's him. Uh, but but he, uh, he had sponsored a bill. I don't know if it's Quirker, though. I think it's a Fincher something. I'll, I'll find that for you. He is sponsoring a bill to do something that I assumed was being done. And boy, was I ignorant. And that is to vet clergy that come into prisons. Right now, imams that are coming into prisons who are allowed to speak confidentially with inmates, they have the same confidential privileges as an attorney, they're not vetted. It doesn't matter if that imam preaches Islamic jihad, hellfire and brimstone night and day, calls for death to America, death to infidels, they can walk into a prison and speak unmonitored, unrecorded, uh, whether it be audio or video, to these prisoners. They're allowed to walk into that prison, radicalize and weaponize inmates. And think about inmates. They're already prone to violence. They already hate the government because the government incarcerated them. And they're predisposed to hate Americans that they've committed crimes upon. And we don't have one mechanism in place to vet these people. Vet on the federal level, on the state level, or at the local level. And I believe that law would only apply to federal prison, which would still leave all of the state prisons and all of the local jail facilities uh, open and vulnerable to conversion. And it really is so dangerous. And we're not hearing enough about this. I went back through archives. CNN never, I couldn't, maybe they did, but I couldn't find, let me preface this by saying I couldn't find one CNN story on this in depth. I couldn't find a Fox News story on this. I saw pieces on blogs touching on this, but I could not find an ABC News story, an NBC News story, a CBS News story on this. The mainstream media is ignoring this, and they have the intelligence. They're being advised by their contributors, their security, their intelligence contributors are telling them about this. They're not running the stories. And it goes back to ideology, right? It goes back to the ideology of the radical Islamist and the people that they're taught when they're radicalized, they're weaponized. They are, they're not just taught to hate people in general. They're taught to specifically hate Christians and Jews. And you, you, Tiffany, you have family in the Middle East. I mean, you have experience with this. Yeah, um, my family survived Islamic persecution in Iraq. I mean, they fled. They were forced to be refugees. Uh, my father fought in the Israeli War of Independence in 48. Um, so he fought them during a pogrom in Baghdad as a child, and then again in um, in 48 in Israel. And what a lot of Westerners don't understand is that this is truly systemic. Even if a minuscule portion of the world Muslim population will actually pull the trigger and become terrorists, the the greater number actually harbor these very radical ideas that are rooted in the Quran. I mean, there are numerous Quranic verse, verses and hadiths that I could quote that talk about the subjugation um, and hatred for Jews and Christians, to a lesser extent Christians, but definitely Christians as well. And this is systemic in Islam. There is a tribal mindset that the Western world really grapples with and has a hard time understanding. But people who come from the Islamic world, like my family, and, and be they Druze, Christian, Yazidi, anyone who is persecuted, and, and there are obviously wonderful Muslims. I don't want to always have to add that qualifier. Of course there are. But by and large, there is a tribal mindset 
um, that is taught to hate and is taught to basically, you know, oppress and subjugate those who aren't like them. Well, and let me put this in perspective, because you touched on an interesting point and a critical point, right? There are good people around the world, no matter your faith, your your orientation, your, your race, your creed. And, and so let's be very, very generous here. There's 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. Let's say now, even even the most progressive analysts will say, and only 1% will radicalize and potentially weaponize as terrorists. Well, that's 17 million. So let's you and I be a little more generous. Let's say half a percent. That's eight and a half million. No, let's say a quarter percent. 4.25 million Muslims around the world, a quarter percent, we're, we're one fourth of what the progressive analysts even will will acknowledge. That's 4.25 million terrorists. The combined strength of the United States military, all services, and the active law enforcement community as we sit here today is about 3 million. They still outnumber us by 1.5 million. To me, that's scary. And that's a number you don't hear. Listen, even Pew Research did extensive studies. I mean, we are talking about Muslims who want Sharia as the law of the land. I mean, this is in countries that aren't even as radical as Saudi Arabia. The majority wants Sharia to be the law of the land. In Egypt, 85% support the executing of apostates. Those are infidels. Those are oh, non-Muslims. Yeah. Jordan, 82%. Palestinian territories, 66%. Those are being Islamized. So, so, so we're being incredibly generous with our quarter percent number. Absolutely. Incre- I mean, just because yes. you won't put on the suicide vest yourself doesn't mean that you don't support it sure. emotionally, well, even in, in, otherwise. In our military, in our law enforcement community, for every man and woman in the field or on the street, there's a support network behind them. You can't exist. Without that, it, it's terrifying. But again, we talked about this pretty much throughout the show today. It all goes back to academia. It's what you learn and where you learn it. And Harvard University, Harvard University, right? That that shining light, that beacon on the hill that everybody looks to and is guided by in academia. Harvard University is now assisting this. And I'm going to tell you all about it. Stick around. You're with John Cardillo filling in for Glenn, the Glenn Beck Program. You're listening. You're listening. To the Glenn Beck Program. The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. to the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for Glenn. Give us a call, 888-727-BECK, 888-727-BECK. If you've been listening to the show either this hour or the last hour, I've mentioned a couple of times that I sat on a safety and security task force that was convened out of Harvard Law School. And I had mentioned that. It was a little bit of foreshadowing. Tiffany, I went back to foreshadowing from high school English. And it's because Harvard, for better or worse, tends to be the place that uh, academia, business, uh, many politicians look to for solutions on an issue. They tend to be a leader on, on many issues. And Harvard Law School really is, and whether, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it seems to be, the, the premier law school in the world. I think many people would argue that if you're a Harvard Law graduate, you'll always make money. You'll always get a job. You'll always be given that, that level of respect that you might not be if you graduate from any program at any other university. So when Harvard University starts to legitimize Sharia law, 
we all need to wake up and take a long look at this. And, and, and they're doing that, aren't they? They're doing that. Harvard has an Islamic legal studies program. And what's very interesting it is they have a fellowship as well, and it's listed under law and social change programs. So again, it goes back to social change and social justice uh, because... You know, Sharia law is so just, John. This is the part that I don't get, though. The people who run Harvard University are the most progressive people on the planet. Sharia law is everything they despise, and Sharia law despises them. Exactly. Listen, at Harvard, there are opportunities now for postdoctoral and faculty-level scholars to conduct research on policies related to all aspects of Islamic law. Now, I want to give some examples of Sharia law. This basically says that if you engage in premarital sex, you have to receive 100 lashes. Adulterers are stoned. Obviously, there are harsh laws concerning punishments for homosexuality. Hands and feet are cut off for thieving. If you convert from Islam, you become a Christian, again, that's punishable by death in some of the countries we talked about earlier. Yeah, so this, this doesn't really comport <laughs> with, say, transgenderism and criminal justice right, reform. Yeah, exactly. This, this, these two things are, are tend to live mutually exclusively of one another. But this is this is the thing. When it comes to the left, there is no intellectual consistency. It's so weird. I mean, that's the only word I can think of. Is just, this is just so bizarre to me. So weird. I know. I wonder how they're going to address people who actually attend those classes by their gender-preferred pronouns, like Z and Z. Right, exactly. How are they going to address women taking those classes? Because I would assume that there aren't many Sharia female Sharia judges out there. No, I, yeah. I think that there's a shortage of those. You know, it just, it blows my mind. It, it, it blows my mind that Harvard would do this and they really believe that they're enlightened and they're, they're, uh, that they're, they're, they're giving their students and their faculty such a wide range of topics from which to learn when in reality, and look, maybe I'm just a little uh, sensitive to this because I see the intelligence. I, I see what is really happening with the unsanitized version that the mainstream media is not uh, that the mainstream media is not giving us that they're giving people the sanitized version. And I realize that that this again, going back to something we spoke about earlier, this is going to be seen as weakness to me. A program like this legitimizes the groups in places like Dearborn, Michigan and Toledo, Ohio, who want Sharia law locally. Of course. Well, listen, moral relativism and postmodernism in academia has weakened us to our core because it's a notion that says, you know, who are we to judge? All cultures and civilizations are created equal. That's why Western civilization has been done away with. And now we're importing Islamic legal studies in Harvard. I mean, as if the two are compatible somehow. You and know. and what's, even, what's even odder about all this is that it's not as if our nation is, what are we, one but there maybe is one percent of the United States population is Muslim, and, and a subset of that uh, would adhere to Sharia. Maybe fifty percent. I mean, yeah. conservatively, I saw some of the studies about fifty percent want some adherence to Sharia. So we're talking about uh, a million out of three hundred and, and some odd million people, and Harvard University is creating courses. Right, but it's always about the minority, right? It was the same thing with the transgender and gender-neutral bathrooms. I mean, they were basically catering to such a minuscule. Um, percentage of the right. population that doesn't, it, yeah, that's, as if it matters. Right. It doesn't matter and, and we shouldn't have... I've always said, like you 0.03%, don't, I think you, it was. You don't set public policy for 11 people. Exactly. You, just, you just don't do it. You're with the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn.
Mercury. Back to the Glenn Beck program. I am John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn. Give us a call 888-727-BECK or you could follow me on Twitter for the rest of the show at John Cardillo. If you're just tuning in a little bit about me, I really got my start in media with Glenn a few years back, but I was a law enforcement guy. I was NYPD, founded a business where I was tracking bad guys in the private sector, spent a lot of time in the legislative arena and learned what a mess everything was. Uh, at the same time, like media, my brand was growing and decided to do it full-time to bring some of my experience, my subject matter expertise to you. And I've just been so humbled, so honored to host the show uh, yesterday and this morning. And the feedback, I'm, I just have to say thank you so much to the audience. Because during the show today and also yesterday, you guys have been awesome with, with the tweets and the Facebook messages and the compliments. It has been an, a great experience. Really, you, the audience, made it that. And uh, But unfortunately for all of us, because I know many of us are like-minded uh, it seems like in these final days of 2016, Barack Obama is trying to do all he can to wreak havoc and devastation on the United States before he's out of there. And no, oh, a little, little bit uh, an over a little bit over three weeks, actually exactly three weeks from today. And there's a laundry list of, of last minute midnight regulations this guy's trying to push through that Barack Obama is trying to push. Tiffany, run us through some of them. Right. Yeah. Well, Obama's got the can of gasoline and he's ready to light the match before he leaves. With a blowtorch. Exactly. Yeah. So um, this is really disturbing. According to the Federal Register agenda, Obama is eyeing $44.1 billion in midnight regulations. Those are things he wants to ram through on his way out the door. It can include as many as 98 regulations classified as, quote, economically significant. Wow. Um, you know, some of the possibilities, in addition to that, you have 64 House Dems basically asked him to use his pardon power to preserve um, the deferred action for childhood arrivals. That basically spares millions of illegal immigrants who came here um, as children and spares them from deportation. We're talking about more clemency for nonviolent drug offenders, coke dealers. Um, you know that he's pardoned um, 78 people and granted another 153 commutions. Uh, commutations well, he's, he's, he's either commuted or pardoned, I believe, more of inmates than all of his predecessors combined, right? Exactly. Isn't it now? But but here's one thing Barack Israel's Obama... Israel's the big one, of course. Right, and Israel's the big one. What he, what he did to Israel at the UN, and we covered that exhaustively yesterday. But one of the things I will give Barack Obama credit for is that he opened my eyes. I know he opened the eyes of many Americans uh, to the real power of the presidency. You know, we're, we're, we're forced to, uh, to believe that there are three branches of government and there's checks and balance. But when you start to really dig in and do some homework and learn how many programs are actually administration-based, in other words, how many things the president can simply sign, Obama was right. He can do a lot of damage with a phone and a pen. 
And and I hope, I hope that Americans realize this because one of the things I think we we don't spend enough time on and we don't involve ourselves in enough our local politics, our state legislatures, right? And and I don't want to go too deep into this. I want to talk more about what Obama's doing and some silly things he said recently. But our state legislature affects our uh, legislature affects our lives so much more immediately. And I spent a lot of time uh, testifying to state legislatures in 15, 20 states. And I learned that that from conception to being signed by a governor, a bill in a state legislature might only it might only take a month. And your life is affected. This is now a law in your state that you could violate and go to jail for or be fined for. Your speed limits, where the stop signs are, your local legislatures. But most people don't take the time to vote in those elections. And and I hope you do because our state legislatures are now the last line of defense against an overreaching federal government. I don't care if it was George Bush in the White House or Barack Obama or now Donald Trump or whoever comes along in four or eight years. We need state legislatures to check the power because we know that the Congress, this Republican Congress that was given a mandate in 2014, failed us. Mitch McConnell and John Boehner and now Paul Ryan failed us. They funded pretty much every one of Obama's agenda items, with the exception of a few great patriots, uh, Louis Gomer and, 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 and guys in that vein who really you know, bucked the system and went against the grain and were true constitutionalists. But they're few and far between. I mean, when I analyze those in Congress and the Senate, Ted Cruz did a very good job with that as well, and Mike Lee. But we maybe have 15 or 20 Congress uh, people and senators who went against the grain. For the most part, they were in lockstep with Mitch McConnell and, and with Paul Ryan and Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi, even though they were in the minority. They acted like they were the majority party. And it seemed to me that, that McConnell and Boehner, uh, then Ryan... Went along, went along. It was just they desired to be accepted or they craved to be accepted. They did. And, you know, uh, a lot of people give Trump flack for saying that, you know, he's a deal maker and he'll work with people. He'll even work with Democrats. There's a difference between being a pragmatist and getting deals done and just, you know, being a pushover. Which is what they which were. Is basically what they were. And, and the thing, one of the things I like about Trump is that New York bravado. Sure, he'll make deals, but he's going to make it very clear. That who's he's the, the president. That who's yeah. the boss? Now, now Obama did that. But the, but the the thing about Obama that was so devastating, Obama flexed the muscle of the Oval Office with Congress, but wouldn't do it abroad. He didn't flex the muscle of the Oval Office with ISIS or Al Qaeda or Putin or China or North Korea, but he did it here at home. He weakened America by by flexing the muscle of the Oval Office against Republicans while cowering in a corner against global bad guys. And so then he goes on, and, and, and he goes on this really, really cutting-edge, uh, impressive program called the Axe Report. The Axe, Axe Files. The Axe Files. David Axelrod show the Axe. How original is that? I mean, I don't know. Did he have a think tank of people? Did David Axelrod bring in the A-team, and they put a think tank together, and they discarded the David Report, and, and they discarded Coffee with Dave you know, and, and they came out. No, no, no. The Axe Files. And he's like, A-Rod was taken. So A-Rod was taken. That's right. <laughs> it, you, the Axe Files. And, and he was so happy about this. And they branded it. So Obama sits down with Axelrod. And he basically says, and I, I spit coffee out, that he could have beat Donald Trump. I don't think Barack Obama could have won local dog catcher. What, <laughs> really? Like, you know, school board deputy superintendent in some county in rural Kansas. I think he would have maybe, maybe won that one because he had the budget. So he sits there and he says he could have won. And he says this with a straight face after one of the most devastating institutional losses for the Democratic Party 
in history. Let's go through some of the losses for the Democrats. Okay, so listen to this. The Democratic Party is absolutely decimated. They have a net loss of 1,042 state and federal Democratic posts, congressional seats, state legislative seats. U.S. Senate seats are down from 55 to 46. House seats down from 256 to 194. That's 24 percent. Um, you know, basically, governorship slid from 28 to 16. That's 43 percent loss. State legislatures plunged. You know, and, and, and this is also the year that brought us Brexit. You see Marine Le Pen doing well in Europe. Oh, Europe, Europe is, is tilted right. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So does he really think that the tide was turning in his favor? I mean, it's delusional. But the bubble he's in. I mean, I truly believe... He's in an echo chamber well, where everyone... It's the whole cult of personality thing. Everyone every, tells him he's amazing. And everyone really is Valerie Jarrett, his surrogate mommy, who comes in and tells him how great he is and how nice he looks that day and how handsome he is and he's the most brilliant and he's the best dressed and he's the best athlete and then he puts on his big bike helmet bike helmet and I was just gonna say rides the woman's anymore. bicycle and and he's told this and he believes it but when we look at these devastating losses one thing I, I get anxiety like I really have anxiety now because Nancy Pelosi and incoming leader Chuck Schumer are going to bulldoze Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan again we have all three we have all three now and we're gonna have the Supreme Court we're gonna have all three branches on the right and for some bizarre reason, and I'm calling this as I sit here today, December 27, 2016, you watch in a few months, Reed, uh, uh, Pelosi and Schumer are going to be bullying McConnell and Ryan once again. And they're going to be capitulating, and McConnell and Ryan are going to be lobbying the White House on behalf of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. We need leadership change in Congress, because the president can only do so much. And this is why Trump was elected. I mean, people did want change. American people saw that. Yeah, but these losses, I mean, 1,042 state and federal Democratic posts. And, and, I, and I love that the governor's mansions are, are, uh, are going red because that, that's who appoints. That's who appoints that senator if somebody gets tapped for an administration post or retires or gets kicked out in scandal. We need the governors. We need the governor's mansions. We need the state legislatures. And Politics is local. It, 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 politics is local. And it's so encouraging to me, so absolutely encouraging to me that... Americans are waking up. They're getting involved. I, I think that was probably the best net takeaway of, of, of the Trump campaign, the Trump phenomenon, was that Americans that were not politically interested became interested. Now, I've always been a Trump supporter, a Trump fan. I know Glenn is not, which is the, the beautiful thing about me hosting this show, and that you've got a host like Glenn, who's a giant in the industry, who wants his audience to hear both sides of the issue. He's not stifling. The left would never. If, if I were on, on the different side of Rachel Maddow, we were both on the right, but we were backing two different candidates, and, and the rhetoric, rhetoric got a bit testy. She'd never have me on to guest host her show. Never. Never in a million years. Never in a million years. She would go down the line with cronies. So so kudos to Glenn. I mean, you know, just a great mind, uh, a, a great personality in, in this industry who wants his audience to have all sides of the issue to hear, to hear all, all, all the, the, the data, all the bits and, and megabytes and terabytes of information that we have available. But, uh, man, I mean, it, I, I still talk, I, I interface every day on air and, and on Twitter and on Facebook with Republicans and Democrats. And often Democrats will engage me more. Progressives will engage me more often and argue with me. And I'm always shocked by one thing. And, and you and I were talking before the show and we drew a parallel between those who follow Barack Obama and those who follow another world leader. And we are going to tell you who that is. If you stick around, you're with John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn Beck, the Glenn Beck program. The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.
888-727-BECK. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo holding down the fort for the vacation in Glenn. Give us a call, 888-727-BECK, 888-727-BECK. You know, we, Barack Obama has not really been a successful president. And we were just talking about that a little bit before the break. And, and he really is, has failed miserably in the country, is in very, very bad shape. You know, yesterday I tweeted that America hasn't felt, to me anyway, like America in eight years. We're like, this is this malaise. We don't want to be patriotic. We just, we just sort of but just we, we kind of phoned it in. We're like, you know, a woman who's been married too long, and you know, we just kind of, even a guy who's been married too long, we let ourselves go a little bit. Like, we need to get back. America needs to get back to the gym, needs to get on a better meal plan. We need to just, you know, get it together because Obama really has 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 soured the mood. He's, he's taken the patriotism out of the everyday lives of Americans. It just didn't, Amer- Americans and America, it just didn't feel like the same nation I grew up in. And so when I saw the, the nut job in North Korea, and I've been messing this up all morning, is it Kim Jong-un or ill? Who, who do we have now? Who's the weirdo uh, with the... Un. Un, okay. The son, the little guy. That's the son. He's like, this is what happens Baby, when you... Yeah. It's when you give a trust Baby fund. Baby Kim Jong. Baby Kim Jong. This is what happens when you give a trust fund kid a country. <laughs> By the way, North Korea is what happens. And so, but but the the idol worship. The, here's what's scary: the people in North Korea have to worship this guy, or he basically kills them and starves them and puts them in these draconian camps. Yet Obama receives that level of idol worship from progressives that don't have to do it. This is what I don't get. People are forced at gunpoint to worship that guy. All Obama has to do is wake up in the morning. And progressives just basically worship him. But I do think Obama missed, he missed the mark. He didn't pick some of the names that the North Korean, let me give you some of the na- North Korean leaders, as, as horrible and reprehensible as they are, and how they should be wiped off the face of the earth. These guys are masters at picking titles. Highest incarnation of the revolutionary comradeship. Glorious general who descended from heaven. Son, S-U-N, by the way, son of the communist future and guiding sunray. And those are like four of 112. Those are four. They have like 150. It's incredible. It's incredible. So that's where Obama missed the mark. But what do you think it is? What do you think is, is in the mindset of your average progressive that can basically just blow facts, stats, and data off? I mean, they, they, this, it's a ridiculous false narrative that Obama creates jobs, that Obamacare is good, is a good thing. I mean, the math is math, right? But again, liberals hate science and math when it contradicts their agenda. That police officers are indiscriminately killing people when the data shows something else. Why do you think these people blindly follow like lemmings? Well, I, I mean, it's a really good question. Progressives are, you know, basically are guided by emotion, right? And theory. That's why they always say, you know, communism was great in theory. Forget the fact that it subjugated hundreds of millions of people. Starved them to killed death. Killed 100 million people. Exactly. Yeah. By the way, 25 years since the fall of the USSR. So. Wow. Uh, yeah. And they've done pretty well for themselves. But Putin might be a bad guy, but, but they're pretty prosperous. The individual business people are doing okay. They are. But, but you know, back to the cult of personality. We saw this in 2008. I don't know if you remember that guy, Richard Ferry, who did the Hope and Change posters, and they were yes. communist propaganda posters. Oh, yeah, People sure People I know who fled Cuba, the former Soviet Union, literally got the chills when they saw those posters. Well, I, I live remember. in Miami. I know. Well, yeah, I mean, you know. They said... Do, that they literally saw history repeating itself, and they were just absolutely appalled at how the media completely, just hook, line, and sinker, worshipped him, covered up for all of his sins, basically, you know, made him out to be this. this let, let me let me tell a story being. about how how just uh, d- clueless or deluded progressives are. Now, one thing I wish, if it were logistically possible, 
Every progressive in America should have to go down a Cayocho, 8th Street in Little Havana, and sit with some of these old Cuban guys and listen to their stories about communism. These are some of the most conservative people on the planet, not because they were, were converted to conservatism or they read something or they heard a speech or they listened to a, a Glenn Beck or a John Cardillo or any other radio host on air watched somebody on Fox News. They lived it. They lived it. They lost their homes and their business and family members lost their lives at the hands of communism, the same communism that, that is just celebrated by progressives. Well, I guess it's about 10 years ago, and I'm going to buy some cigars at, at one of the little cigar factories in Little Havana. And I see this commotion on a street corner. And it's these old Cuban guys in their Wyavera shirts. And they're like, it's like something out of a movie. They've got their little Cuban coffee cups in one hand. And they're like whacking two guys with rolled up newspapers. And it was the most bizarre thing. So I walk over to break it up because it really wasn't a violent confrontation. And they're, they're whacking these two hipsters that thought it was a good idea to walk down 8th Street, Cayocho, and Little Havana in Che Guevara shirts. Good. And they thought that was going to be like applauded because apparently it is in Williamsburg or Dumbo, Brooklyn, wherever they came from. They thought it was a good idea to walk through the Cuban dissident community in Che t-shirts. And this is how clueless how they are. They're ignorant. They it's ignorance. Yeah. It's willfully ignorant. It was even, but watching these old guys whack them with newspapers, it was amazing. Screaming I at wish them. I had seen that. And they didn't spill their coffee. It was great. They like had their cigars in their mouth, their little <laughs> coffee cup. Tuesday. And just beating them with these newspapers. Not really doing any damage, but man, they made the point. But but it goes back to, they don't even, the progressives don't even research what's behind the icons that they think are so cool. So they worship a Barack Obama. They do no research on him, his agenda, his policies, what it means for them, especially the ones in their 20s and early 30s, what it means for them in the decades to come, how much money he took from their pockets. They don't do the research behind who Guevara really was, a rapist, a murderer. They're wearing his T-shirt as if he's a rock star. But you see, even when the information is out there, they choose to ignore it because, you know, you have people like Justin Trudeau who are basically sending, yeah. you know, yeah. basically talking about, you know, Cuban dictators as if they are, you know, yeah. good Samaritans. Good Samaritans. I mean, his message on Castro was just disgraceful, but he got blowback. I mean, even Canadians who tend to swing a little bit left beat him up on that one. That's true. And look, I'm not, see, I'm a guy who's, I don't buy into cults of personality. I've never engaged in idol worship of anybody. I supported Donald Trump, but I called Donald Trump out because he hasn't asked for uh, the return of Joanne Chesimard as a concession to even talking to Cuba. I don't like some of the appointments. I don't like the Goldman Sachs people in the administration. I personally don't like that the RNC, you know, many Trump voters, myself included, wanted to see an outsider cabinet. And now the RNC is really the Praetorian Guard with Reince Priebus as chief of staff and Spicer as Spox. So there are a lot of moves that he made that I don't like, and I've been very vocally critical. But isn't that what America's about? Aren't we supposed to criticize our leaders, even the ones we vote for? In fact, shouldn't we criticize the ones we vote for more vocally and keep them in check? Well, you should. And I mean, at the at the end of the day, what progressives, as I said, worship is an idea and an ideal. And to them, Obama was the embodiment of, of their utopian paradise. And, you know, he, they, they couldn't accept the fact that he was not that in reality. That's, that's all it was. That's all it was. You're with John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn, the Glenn Beck program. is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.
This is the Glenn Beck Program. Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo, sitting in for the vacationing Glenn. Give us a call, 888-727-BECK, 888-727-BECK, or follow me on Twitter, at John Cardillo. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but one of the shows I really enjoy, one of the television shows I really enjoy, on it's actually on Amazon, uh, on demand, you should call it Amazon On Demand, or Amazon's digital streaming, is the man, the man in High Castle, which is a great show. Some people don't like it. I find it really interesting. I binge watch it. And if you don't know what it's about, it's about uh, if, if Germany and Japan had won World War II. Germany controls the east eastern uh, part of the United States with their headquarters in New York City. Uh, the Nazis do. And the Japanese Empire controls the West Coast with their headquarters in San Francisco. So I watched season two, and I think season two uh, launched, they released season two uh, December 16th. Well, three days after that, Kurt Schlichter, town hall columnist, did a story that I called The Woman with the High Collar, and it was entitled The Terrifying Aftermath of Hillary's Election Victory. If Hillary Clinton, what America would look like if Hillary Clinton had won the presidential election? And Kurt Schlichter joins me now to discuss. You know, Kurt, you scared me with this, because I had, you know, the, the Man in the High Castle is a little bit depressing. You wonder what might have been, and then three days later, you put this in my face. Well, you know, I'm always there for you, John. You, you are. You are. So tell us a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what America would look like if we had Madame Clinton being inaugurated in three weeks. Uh, I don't even like you saying that. I have a, I have a terrible cold right now, and you've made me feel worse. Um, look, every day I wake up giggling and smiling at the utter rejection and humiliation of Hillary Clinton. And with a sense of exhilaration at the giant bullet America dodged because uh, that, uh, we, we, we told uh, that doddering corrupt monster, go back to Chappaqua. But just think about what would have happened if she had won. First of all, I think we'd all be choking on her smugness. The smugness in the media, the smugness issuing from her, uh, uh, just the, the, the utter, utter hate and contempt they'd express for the rest of us. We'd yeah, be written be preaching, out of the game. Let me ask you, Kurt. Do you think they would be preaching unity and reaching across the aisle and concessions and and we we need the White House to understand that there's another half of America? Or would they be saying, oh, elections have consequences. Again, deal with it. Uh, hmm. Let me think about the track record of the last eight years. Yeah, I'll go with option two. And... <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, can you imagine the stream of leftist monsters she would be appointing? Well, that's the thing. I mean, oh, well, climate change weirdos, right. uh, anti-cop uh, DOJ people. Oh, for, forget ever investigating any corruption anymore. But the Supreme Court would be You're an attorney. Yeah, you're a trial attorney, and you're a legal scholar. The Supreme Court, I argue, Ugh. the Supreme Court would have been tipped for 25 to 35 years, depending on the age of somebody she appointed. Because, look, if Trump, say, nominates a Ted Cruz, right? What is Cruz, 45 years old? He's yeah. a healthy guy. Cruz could conceivably sit on the court for 35 years. Hillary, oh, I love how, ter- how terrifying is it if Hillary appointed a, 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 a 45-year-old <laughs> far-left radical? Well, just, just, look, just think of what we'd have. Uh... uh you know, uh, uh, discovering a constitutional requirement that we all, uh, you know, chip in to pay for uh, late-term abortions. Uh, yeah. How about the Second Amendment? Nope. How, how about the First Amendment? No, well, there are exceptions now. 
you know, let me ask you a question as an attorney, as an attorney, as an attorney, what, what do you think? I mean, and you've been, you've been a great satirist of the political process. I'm speaking with town hall columnist, Kurt Schlichter, who's also a trial lawyer. And I should note a retired Colonel in the United States army served 27 years. Uh, You know, Kurt, what do you think that a left, a Hillary Clinton appointed Supreme court, had she won, thank God she didn't. What do you think the top three agenda items uh, they would have gone after would have, would have uh, been. I think I think Second Amendment. Yeah, First Second Amendment, Amendment definitely. Have, um, yeah. First Amendment. You got to understand. You know, she keeps talking about Citizens United. Citizens United was a case brought to determine whether the government could criminally prosecute you for putting out a movie critical of. Wait for it, Hillary Clinton. Now, here here's Hillary Clinton's argument. The government has the power, despite the First Amendment, to put you in jail if you put out a movie criticizing her. Let's roll that around in our heads for a minute. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting? I never heard that on CNN. CNN no, you never heard that. that. I was on with some leftist on some show, and I, you know, being a lawyer and having, you know, a legal background, I said, D- D- do you know what Citizens United was? Well, it's about money. Well, let me ask you something. If Citizens United is resolved in, in your favor, what do you think the appropriate jail sentence for someone putting out a movie critical of Hillary Clinton that Hillary Clinton doesn't like should be? And she gives me this blank stare. And I'm like, you, you do know what Citizens United is about. You do know no, that they were, the Solicitor they, General with, of the United States went up and told you before the United States Supreme Court that the government could ban a book. Right, but what people were told, and you know this, you and I have discussed this on, on my show, people were told, the American public was sold by the, by the uh, DNC's cohorts in the media, that Citizens United was all about big, bad, rich corporations run by Republican conservatives being able to donate to political campaigns. That's what most Americans believe that Citizens United is about. Prior to yeah. it, you could only make a, 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 an individual contribution to a hard money campaign. Now corporations can do it. They have no idea that it has anything to do with the First Amendment and and production of media projects. Well, you know, this is not... That it would allow the government to put people in jail for being critical of the government is not a flaw in the eyes of Hillary Clinton. That is a feature. Hillary Clinton is not a believer in freedom. She is not a believer in free expression. She is a leftist totalitarian... I'm concerned about one thing, though. I think I lost some money here because I didn't. I was going to surprise you with this. It was a Christmas present. But oh. I bought you a plane ticket to New York with me, and we were going to walk through the woods looking for Hillary together. And I really <laughs> thought you would enjoy that. But now I'm a little concerned that I might have missed the mark on that one. Oh, I like how she's wandering through Whole Foods taking selfies with random losers. What if you just I, I cried for so long, Hillary? Now I can't make love to my husband because Trump's won. And their husband's sitting there going, Yes. Yeah. And and she's walking through the woods like finding Bigfoot, that reality show. It's like people are out there with GPS and night vision finding Hillary in the woods of Trump. Oh, oh, how about the it nightmare the of making it alone with Hillary? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, survival. You survive anything in Man in the High Castle. Yeah, Survivor Man, Chappaqua. You're out there with your little GoPro on your little tripod. But boy, could you just imagine how horrifying it would be? Because this is a woman who, again, and I have to say it, and I want to be very clear, she and her cohort hate us. They don't dislike us. They don't find us 
opponents. They hate us and want to do things to harm us simply because they can. There is no other reason, for example, the giant cake baking thing has happened other than to just rub our faces in their power. And what happens when you rub America's face, Americans' faces in something for long enough? You're a well, that's just it. You're a New Yorker. You were a cop. Yes. How yes, do Americans power. react when you push and push and push? Well, look, it's about power, though. You nailed it, right? Hillary Clinton has had power in some form for 40 years, 30-some-odd years, right? She was the uh, wife of the attorney general of Arkansas, and in a state like Arkansas in the 80s, that's pretty powerful. Then wife of the governor, that's really powerful. Then went to the White House, which is the ultimate power. I mean, she remember that debacle back in the 90s when she mapped out that convoluted uh, 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 Rube Goldberg rendition of, of health care? Oh, on that yeah. whiteboard, and the congressmen were all sitting there like dogs looking at a milkbone dog biscuit. Like they were just utterly confused. What in the world is this woman talking about? And then she <laughs> kind of disappeared. And 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 it, but what's even worse is Hillary Clinton was Bill Clinton's liaison on the Hill, who sold the most radical anti-gay agenda in history, right? Defense of Marriage Act, Religious oh, yeah. Freedom Restoration Act. Don't ask, don't tell. It was, and you didn't hear a word about that. I mean, now the reinvented Queen Hillary was was a champion of gay rights. She sold Bill Clinton's crime bill on the Hill. Look, I was a cop. I benefited. I got a new gun. We got new cars. But we also got these draconian sentences, and we were locking guys up for dumb drug offenses, and our lieutenants were shaking their heads saying, this is the South Bronx. Why are we doing this? That was all Hillary Clinton. And it was always about power, the ability to impose the power of the Clinton regime. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think it, frankly, would have torn this country apart. Imagine, I, I just came back from Texas, spent, spent a few days there over Christmas with wife's family. Texas yeah, it was vibrant, a, look, the economy's moving. Doing great. It's doing it's great. Largest, now, imagine yeah, when Hillary's the EPA the says, no more fracking, no more oil drilling. We're going to leave it in the ground because of this global warming paganism nonsense. It's so ridiculous. Well, that's what they're afraid the of, though, place, Kurt. The economy that's what they're afraid of. Tank. They're afraid of energy exploration. When, because look at North Dakota. Energy exploration is the quickest path to prosperity and job creation. Really, in terms of, of U.S. industry, it's the quickest path. You pull oil and natural gas out of the ground, you need thousands of bodies to get it to market. Progressives are terrified of that. Well, and, and, and they can't take any of that power. They don't get the money. They don't get the power. With, with these green, this green nonsense, the cylindrus, they can reward their friends. They can choose winners and losers. It's more power and more money for them. That's the common, that is the common key. Remember, remember in the 70s when they were talking about the impending ice age? Yes, I do. I was, I was in school. I was terrified. I went and bought, I, I wanted new winter coats for Christmas every year. I didn't even want, <laughs> I didn't even want toys. And, it was, and, and, of course, their solution was more money and power for liberals. Of course. Of course. And, and look, and it's same the with same people. Rain, same yeah. with the ozone it, it, hole. Acid rain was the 80s. Yeah, that was big in the late, that was like big in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, Kurt, it's always such an absolute, I feel so much better after I talk to you. And, and after the show, yeah. I'm going to give you a call. I'm going to get you to chop a call with me. We're going we're gonna to walk through the woods. We should, we should go. We need a camera crew. We're going to go. We're gonna go. Kurt, Kurt Schlichter, everybody. Catch him on townhall.com. The great Colonel Schlichter will be speaking soon, my friend. You've been with John Cardillo. You're still with John Cardillo sitting in for Glenn Beck. The Glenn Beck program will be right back. This is the Glenn Beck program. Mercury.
Welcome back to the Glenn Beck Program. I'm John Cardillo. I've been sitting in for Glenn yesterday and today, and I just want to take this time, the little bit of time we have remaining, to say thank you. Thank you to the audience. Thank you to Glenn and to the outstanding team on this show. This is the most professional team I've dealt with in radio. And Tiffany is always my great co-host, executive producer. You've been awesome. This was uh, thank you. Your, your debut on the national <laughs> stage. It was it was great. But but I you know I know I said it at the top of the hour, but I have to reiterate. This audience has been outstanding. I, you know, you get you get comments on Twitter and on Facebook, but the compliments we've gotten throughout the show, so it's gracious, so flattering. Lovely, it's the nicest people on the planet are in this audience, far nicer than my audience in many cases, <laughs> who beat me up. And it was really, I and mean, look, not everybody agreed, but everybody, and the people who disagreed, who sent us messages, well, they were really smart. I mean, the, the messages made a lot of sense. They got us thinking, and it's really been uh, an outstanding experience because you know when you when you broadcast in one city or a few cities. The points of view, political points of view, tend to be regional in, in many respects. So it's a really interesting dynamic and a nice change to be able to interface nationally and and see uh, opinions coming in from Indiana and Texas and California and, and even even liberals who called and got a little upset with us yesterday. Jill Stein supporters. Jill Stein supporters. And I, you know, it, it keeps it interesting. But, uh, it, no, this has been an outstanding experience. We do want to know, you know, a great mind is retiring in the conservative world, Dr. Thomas Sowell. He is... Uh, He's decided to hang it up at the ripe young age of 86 to concentrate on his photography. God bless. God bless him. They don't make him like that. No, and we need to find the next conservative, uh, you know, economist who also has 50 years of staying power to to debunk the liberal agenda. But um, so well-earned retirement to uh, uh, Professor Saul. And and again, this has been uh, this for me anyway was was such a cool experience because to end 2016 sitting in for Glenn. Uh, with whom I got my start in media was just a perfect, an absolutely perfect end, perfect, perfect, perfect end of this year for me. And you uh, worked for The Blaze. Well, absolutely. Actually, I got my start uh, in political media working with Glenn um, when he launched The Blaze. So this is very apropos for me. And uh, and I'm, you know, I'm very appreciative. And, and thank you, John, so much for having me on. And to Glenn and, and the crew, you've all been really wonderful. Um so it's, it's a great way it was to good. wrap you, up 2016. And you did all the work I didn't want to do anyway. You did all the research and all the, uh, the stuff that I didn't want to do. But you know, one of the things I'll leave you with, I said it earlier in the show, but, you know, if you take anything into 2017, try to, try to remember, even if it's a couple of minutes a week, the people that are out there doing for you, the first responders. You know, we all have our, our pet charities, our pet uh, uh, causes, and I have many, you know, cancer and, and certain types of diseases that we donate to uh, children's hospitals, but this is one that I live every day, because such a large part of my audience is the first responder community. So so do that additional research. You know, there, there are police officers and, and corrections officers and federal agents and and, and uh, troops being, being killed that we're not hearing about and, and seriously injured. Take a moment to research them. Think about them. Say a prayer. Send an email to their Facebook or, or a message to their Facebook page just telling them you're thinking about them and, and they're in your thoughts and prayers. Believe me, it goes a long so way. Much. It really does. And think about all of those first responders out there working every night while you're home safe and warm. They're out there ready to rush to your home to help you. Again, this has been an absolutely, absolutely outstanding experience. God bless. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. You've been with John Cardillo, The Glenn Beck Program. This is The Glenn Beck Program. 
Mercury.